Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings the human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. Green tech, solar energy. What do you think when you hear these words? Probably putting it on your roof, right? Or maybe your local electricity provider. Wonder Capital is coming at it from a very different direction. They are filling the gap to help finance commercial solar. Think community solar projects, solar panels on warehouses, and a lot more. According to Dave Reese, co-founder and CEO at Wonder Capital, there's a lot of untapped potential. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast. And I think we are uh, you guys are going to really enjoy our guest today. It's in a field that we haven't covered as much in, in finance and particularly a really interesting area around solar. So I'm pleased to have Dave Reese on here. He's the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Capital. Welcome, man. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's good to be here. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I was telling you before, I keep looking at the name and I want to say Wunder Kapital, but that's not how you pronounce it. So not that anyone else was thinking that. Yeah, we were born and raised in Colorado, at least the company was. So <laughs> you're based in Denver? We're based in Boulder. Got a satellite office in Denver. And then uh, okay. a couple of people sprinkled throughout the country. That's a great state to uh, be based in. I, I think you guys got a really cool tech scene going on there. So, Yeah, it's not bad. It's a pretty good quality of life. Good access to both coasts, but more importantly, great access to the mountains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we, uh, we started an office there in uh, Sumo Logic. I think people really enjoy living out there. Well, we're really happy to have you on, and I think I've had a, just a couple other people on here for the you know, finance industry. And I mean, I, I interviewed somebody just a couple months ago, and you guys are heavy users of data in general. And you know, I think that's it's always really interesting to see how it kind of weaves into what you guys are doing. But before we get started on that, like we do with everybody that comes on, I'd love to introduce the audience a little bit more to you and you know, kind of your background. So, how did you end up at Wonder Capital? I mean, what's kind of your background and kind of led you where you're at? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a bit of a circuitous path. So coming out of undergraduate, my degree was in electrical engineering. So was a big geek coming out of school, moved to New York City, kind of stumbled into the early stage technology company scene, landed a job, my first job out of school, a company that was building this platform for prototyping Linux devices. So it was this embedded system that we were developing. It's a company called Bug Labs, if anybody remembers that from back in the day. It was a pretty interesting product. And you know, one thing led to another at Bug Labs, and I moved from the hardware development side of the house to the software development side of the house. And that is where I caught the bug vis-a-vis you know, -vis software development and kind of moved down that direction for most of the first part of my career wrote a lot of code in my early 20s, took a job as a product manager in my mid-20s, and ended up in this position where I was kind of straddling the business side of several companies or the product side and you know, also the engineering side as well. One thing led to another. I'll, I'll give you the abridged version here. One thing led to another, and I found myself at an advertising technology company. We were basically helping big brands spend money more effectively on Facebook, and that's when I realized I needed to reevaluate my selection criteria that I was using to sculpt my career. So I had a bit of a quarter-life crisis, maybe a little bit of a late quarter-life crisis, and realized that if I'm going to solve a really hard problem, or if I'm going to work really hard trying to solve a really hard problem, I may as well be working on a problem that matters 
And so then that begs the question, it's like, well, what problems matter? What matters most? And took a little bit of time off to think about that and came up with this trifecta at the time, which I, th- I still think is a pretty good answer. I might adjust it slightly, but at the time it was energy, education, and healthcare. And I decided that of those three, energy was obviously the winner because if you have a fantastic healthcare system and a fantastic education system, but you don't have a planet to live on, you know, you're not doing too well. So <laughs> I decided to reorient and go into energy as a place that I had spent a lot of time thinking about coming out of school. Actually, as an undergrad, thought I was going to leave college and work for utility. I interviewed at a utility and saw that it was a pretty depressing cube farm. So I decided that wasn't the right thing for me to do. And anyway, so fast forward to my late 20s, I was looking for a way into the energy space. And I was specifically looking for a way to validate some of the hypotheses about the energy industry that I had developed as mm-hmm. an outsider, specifically some hypotheses around why the space moves so slowly, why it seems so impervious to change. I think there's a lot of group think about that. And my views on kind of the answer to that question are a little bit contrarian. And so, you know, I wanted to go and talk to some of the people who are much closer to that problem than I was and validate or invalidate some of my hypotheses. And so I went to Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and basically forced them to hire me as a researcher by offering to work for free. And really, yeah, it was, and it was a really cool experience, a really cool place. I mean, the national lab is really a treasure. Yeah. There's a lot of very, very intelligent people there working very, very hard on some very niche problems. The reason specifically that I went to the lab, Lawrence Berkeley was because it's kind of this melting pot of thought leadership within energy. So they deal with Mm -hmm. all of the California investor and utilities, which are the, you know, PG&E, Southern California, Edison, SDG&E, they're the most progressive or some of the most progressive utilities in the nation. They deal with the California regulators who are pretty definitively the most progressive, or at least by some measures. DOE is Department of Energy is their primary financier. Uh, They deal with the other national labs in the network. They deal with some private labs that are are in California. So it's really this nexus of thought leadership. And in my relatively short tenure at the lab, I got an opportunity to talk with a lot of people who I would have otherwise, I think, had trouble getting access to. And I actually got validation on some of the hypotheses that I had developed as an outsider. And it was at the lab that I found the opportunity, which is really what Wonder has been going after for the last six years. And that really was this recognition that in order to bend down our domestic carbon emissions curve, really the biggest lever that we have is the deployment of technology that we already have, specifically solar. And if you look at the solar industry, you can break the solar industry into three segments, the residential segment, the commercial segment, and the utility scale segment. Residential would be systems on rooftops, generally about $10,000 to $20,000. The utility scale segment is gigantic $50 million and up systems that are out in the desert. And then the commercial and industrial segment is really everything in between, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And if you look at growth amongst these segments, you see pretty solid, pretty robust growth within the utility scale segment. You see explosive growth within the residential segment. And within the commercial and industrial segment, it's crickets. There's very, very little growth in that segment. And if you ask industry insiders what's going on there, there are a number of factors really dominating that conversation are two factors. One is that transaction costs tend to be prohibitive in that space. And the other is that there is a dearth of financing. There's just not a lot of financing available for those types of systems. I can talk about a little bit why that is. 
And when you say transaction costs, what specifically does transaction costs mean in that context? So that would be everything from permitting to underwriting to contracting. So underwriting, I'll back up here for audience. Underwriting is a fancy word that finance people use to describe risk evaluation. And so when you're doing, that's one of the things that really delineates these three segments. So I'll pick on that for a second. So in the residential segment, you see a lot of access to capital, which is why there's a lot of growth within the residential segment. And most of the capital that flows within the residential segment of solar flows on the basis of homeowner FICO, so homeowner credit worthiness. And I would say, I think many probably would agree with me that homeowner credit worthiness is perhaps not a great proxy for solar investment risk, but it is something that Wall Street understands and is very comfortable with. So no Wall Street investor has ever lost their job for investing on the basis of FICO. If you go to the other end of the continuum and you talk about the utility scale segment, you talk about a $100 million investment, that falls into a category that the you know Wall Street world will refer to as project finance. And project finance is dominated by these really kind of bespoke transactions. we got a lot of lawyers involved. You have a bunch of well-paid analysts who are evaluating various risks associated with the deal. You've got specialists who are looking at environmental impacts. And it's a really expensive transaction to do because you can afford it if you're deploying $100 million, you can afford a million or $2 million of, of these types of transaction costs. So if you start to scale that down, you want to look at the commercial segment, you don't have a turnkey risk valuation methodology for a pizza shop like you know, like FICO. There's no FICO for pizza shops. The example that I like to use is if I give you a hardware store in the middle of Kansas, I give you a hardware store in San Francisco, and I give you a hardware store in you know upstate New York, and I ask you to tell me which one is the healthiest hardware store, you can answer that question, but in order to do so, you have to pour over the financials. You, know, you look at their transaction history. You have to look at the market, whether the population growth. Like you're going to look at a bunch of different things. It's fundamentally a very bespoke type. It's a very custom type of risk valuation. If you kind of ask the same question across cohorts of humans, there's a lot more homogeneity across human beings than there are across hardware stores. And so you can look at FICO. And while some people might have credit worthiness that is underrepresented by their FICO, and some people might have credit worthiness that is overrepresented by their FICO, it's generally going to be pretty close. You have kind of a law of large numbers at play. Oh, that's super interesting. So basically what you're saying is that you're seeing a large growth, but there's essentially a dip in this area that has a you know potential for growth, but their credit worthiness of these businesses is really hard to evaluate because it's so special. You know, Each business is a little different. And, is that right? Yep, that's exactly right. So when we look at evaluating risk and conducting transactions more generally within the commercial space, the premise on which Wonder was founded was that we could deploy software and specifically deploy automation and decision support for the purposes of streamlining transactions within the commercial space. So when we saw that problem, i.e. that gap within the financing market, we immediately recognized that this is a place where we can deploy our competencies as essentially software developers to really move the needle from a transaction and cost reduction standpoint. That's super interesting because I guess you you have the large numbers of, I don't know if you call it entities or whatever that you might see and when you're talking about evaluating people so that you could start to see some patterns, but you don't necessarily have those mechanisms in place already, I guess. like So there's an opportunity for you guys to apply some tools that, you know, because one of the things, right, is 
to really get those kind of results out of AI, machine learning, whatever, you've got to have a large quantity of data to really, you know, feed off of. So is that part of what made this, uh, you know, kind of attractive and possible is because the data is, I mean, well, what kind of data are we talking about? When you talk about evaluating a business, is this, you know, what, what kind of sources of data are you going after that you can really, you know, pull in? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're evaluating these opportunities, so closing a loop on what Wonder does actually is we specifically provide financing for commercial solar development. So the broad strokes of that are that you will have a some type of a solar developer. So there's a number of different archetypes of solar professional out there that is in the business of essentially assembling these types of deals. So, you know, they might go to a warehouse and sell a system to that warehouse. There's a number of structures within which that sale is conducted, which we can get into that if you're interested. There's a little bit of nuance there. But really what we are financing is an investment vehicle that exists to basically build that system and then sell power from that system to some type of an underlying tenant. That's kind of the most typical archetype. And so when we're evaluating these investments, we're evaluating really specifically that deal structure. And so we're looking at everything from the suitability of the roof to, you know, risks related to permitting. We're looking at off-taker credibility. So if we're selling the power to some specific, like a cold storage facility or a data center, we're looking at the credibility of that data center. We're evaluating the contracts that are used to stand up the transaction. We're looking at a lot of different sort of aspects of the deal in order to put together a comprehensive picture of what the overall risk profile of a specific transaction looks like. And so it's not something where we are exclusively um, indexing on the bankability of the underlying commercial property or the commercial entity that occupies that property. And so there's a lot of different places that data comes from. In fact, data acquisition is one of our major challenges, something that we're investing heavily in developing some infrastructure to attempt to streamline right now. There are certain aspects of it that are highly automated, and then there are certain aspects that are very manual and are relative cost centers for us. And once that disparate data gets ingested into our system, then we basically run it through this, and we can talk more about this, but we run it through this pipeline that helps our risk evaluation team make sense of it and ultimately render a investment decision, a credit decision on whether or not this is the type of deal that is appropriate for us to deploy capital against. That makes a lot of sense because I think you you and I were talking about this a little before we started recording, but you know, there's a a lot of times when people hear AI or machine learning and finance, particularly some of the things that have happened in the industry, it's kind of a bad taste in people's mouths because you know, there's a sense that these faceless algorithms just end up making decisions that no one can really understand. And I, I think it's interesting how you guys are, you, you're doing here. Cause I think there, you see this in a lot of different industries, right? Like you can tell me if this analogy makes sense to you, but I mean, sometimes I use it cause I like comic book characters. It's like the difference between, you know, having how 9,000, you know, and uh, basically kicking the astronaut out the airlock or you, you have like more of an Iron Man suit where it's, it's basically augmenting the capabilities of a person, right? And so it sounds to oh, me man, like I you guys that. are definitely on the Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were very, very, very staunchly in the Iron Man camp. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great analog. I'm definitely going to steal that. For us, <laughs> you know, ultimately, what we're doing is we're packaging up these loans that we're issuing against these solar assets, and we need to sell them basically to a Wall Street investor. And so 
in the process of doing that, we need to be able to go all the way to the metal on the decision that was made. We need to be very, very explicit about why we would characterize this transaction as what we refer to internally as a conforming transaction, something that conforms with our risk evaluation methodology. And so to your point around the extent to which we are using or able to use black box algorithms, I think there are places where that has room to play in the future. But at present, we focus much more on decision support and specific places where we can basically extract human cycles from the transaction process. So that's kind of oftentimes what I'll refer to as automation and less so on something that's trying to extract patterns from the underlying data. The other thing to recognize is that we deal with a lot of data, but I wouldn't characterize this as a big data company. I think this year we'll do something in the range of about probably a little bit shy of 300 deals. And, you know, when we're working on these problems as an engineering team or as a product team, we're developing the infrastructure and the apparatus to enable us to ideally better than triple that next year to maybe something in the range of about a thousand transactions. Ultimately, we expect to be doing 10, 20, 30,000 transactions a year. You know, those are pretty big numbers, but that's not particularly big data. If you have, you know, three to 500 data points per transaction, it's not the type of thing where you obviously have a training data set that's of adequate size to, you know, train some super sophisticated, you know, neural net or what have you on the outcomes that you're trying to seek. There may be very well insight that you can glean from introspecting decisions that were made by the system or that were you know, made by the humans within the system, but it's not sort of a central tenant for how we're structured today. Really, the way that we think about the world today is that our risk evaluation process is a composite of a bunch of decisions, of a bunch of atomic decisions about specific aspects of a deal, adequacy of site control, credibility of off-taker, and these things get pretty narrow, you know, years in business, things like specific financial metrics that we're looking at that we're pulling off of their financial statements. And when you start to look at those decisions, you can place them on a continuum. And you can place them on a continuum where at one end you have super, super objective decisions. So that would be some of our economic analysis that we do on the system, some of our economic analysis that we do on the off-takers. And what's an off-taker? I got to be careful with my verbiage here. That's <laughs> the energy off-taker. So the person buying power and the, the company buying power from the system. Okay, got So it. you have you know these objective evaluations, which are numbers in, numbers out. Those are pretty straightforward, pretty easy to streamline or pretty easy to automate. And then you have super subjective decisions. Like I'll give you an example at the other end of the continuum, which is an evaluation of professionalism, which is something that we care about. We get signal from it. It's not something that we over-index, but it is something that we look at. And what we find is that most of the decisions that we make kind of exist somewhere in the middle where there are kind of aspects of them that are quantitative and there are aspects of them that are subjective. And that's really why it is so abundantly clear to us that we need a hybrid system that can both streamline these objective decision-making processes, but also tee up the information that a human needs in order to carry greater throughput through their semi or you know, pseudo-subjective decision-making process. And so basically, the way that we approach this as a practical matter is you know, when we're looking at our financing process and we're trying to build an increased level of efficiency into that process, instead of saying to our product and engineering team, you know, hey, 
let's take this thing that Emily is doing on our financing team and bring this into our software and take it off of her plate. Instead, we're typically saying, okay, Emily can do five transactions a week today. What tooling do we have to deliver to Emily in order for her to be able to do 50 transactions a week. We're looking yeah. at trying to increase that throughput and trying to make sure that she's not doing anything that she doesn't absolutely need to do so that the way in which our humans are adding value to our underwriting process is really kind of distilled down to the central aspects of what a human should be contributing to that process. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because you, you had mentioned before the previous interview I did with Brad Klingenberg over at Stitch Fix. And yeah, I think there's quite a bit of similarities over there because I think, yeah, there was a period of time in artificial intelligence, machine learning, where it was, yeah, it was all about automating everything away. The machine's going to take it over. But I think what a lot of recently successful businesses have found that it's, I really like the way that you explained that, you know, it's basically, can I take these smart, capable subject matter experts and make them more effective and help them you know, increase their productivity by, you know, putting more at their fingertips. And it's not about taking the decision off their plate, but it's making them more effective day in and day out. And that, I think that's a really compelling way to use technology. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been pretty transformative. We take that further. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, is kind of an interesting contrast between the hybrid system that we have versus the hybrid system that at least I understand from the podcast Stitch Fix has is transparency. Mm -hmm. So this is another feature of our system that I think is pretty unique. From pretty early on, we recognized, with the help of some of our advisors who'd kind of been in and around building very similar systems, you know, prior or at other, in other contexts, that it is incredibly important that our business team remain in lockstep with the way that our system operates. So mm -hmm. what we want to avoid is a situation where we have some type of risk evaluation that is conducted in kind of, I don't know if you're a big Paul Graham fan, but I'm a big fan of Paul Graham's do unscalable things. I'm pretty oh. sure that's what the essay is called. Basically, you do things the hard way first, and then you figure out, you basically understand your problem domain by virtue of doing the hard things that are unscalable, and then you know what software to build, or at least you have a better idea coming out of that. So we do a lot of that. And so... Predicated on that philosophy, if we have our financing team doing some type of an evaluation, what we want to avoid is a world where we say, okay, cool, this evaluation that the financing team is doing is pretty well baked. It's pretty good. It's pretty well understood. We don't see a lot of need for this to move dramatically. So why don't we have somebody from our financing team sit down with somebody from our engineering team and let's write this into software? To us, that is an anti-pattern because what happens on the other side of that is now you have this piece of software which is opaque to your business team and your business team's ability to diagnose the way in which this thing is behaving is basically nil. If this thing is having an issue or we even want to propose an iteration to it, you require that somebody from the business team sit down with somebody from the engineering team to go through and make sure that this thing is behaving in a way that lines up with our desired outcome. So one of the things that we've done that's pretty unique is that our data pipeline is architected specifically to be front to back understandable by our business team. The vision that we've had for a long time now is that in two years time, we want an analyst on our financing team, somebody who has no engineering background, to be able to get up at a whiteboard and draw the data pipeline front to back. 
and be able to describe in detail every step of you know the data transforms, every step of that pipeline that leads to the ultimate resultant data that we ultimately render credit decisions against. And that level of first principles-based understanding of how our data pipeline works is essential because we believe that it is essential that our financing team not think about risk valuation in abstract terms. They have to think about it in real terms. And so what we've done is we've actually leveraged Google Sheets, of all things, extensively. And by using a spreadsheet, all of the calculations that are done within our data pipeline happen within a spreadsheet. And our infrastructure basically picks up those spreadsheets and will essentially automatically execute them for the purposes of executing the the data pipeline. In the event that we need to introduce incremental additional steps to our pipeline, we spin up new sheets. It's a very low cost process. And we're still in the early innings of rolling this out. We've been rolling it out probably over the last couple of quarters, I'd say. But it's really, really exciting the result that this has had. It's been exactly what we've wanted you know, for several years now. We've been building up to a point where the infrastructure is able to support this sort of thing. And it's really profound to see the way in which our financing team is able to maintain full ownership over the way in which risk valuation happens within their problem domain. That's super interesting. It's, it's funny what I'm thinking in the back of my head. One of the most impressive things that you just said is that you convince finance people to use Google Sheets. <laughs> uh, Excel on Windows. So, um, you know, <laughs> props. We're a Mac shop, and man, I have had some battles getting people <laughs> to like go over their PCs. And we hire people out of like Wall Street, and they're like, You want me to use a what? Um, <laughs> but I've won, I've persevered. So, we actually, it's funny you mentioned that <laughs> we were working on this, this one transaction, had a really complicated Excel model that we had to run, and it was actually crashing MacBook Pros because. I don't know the details on this. I didn't take the time to, to spelunk, but apparently the OS 10 Excel is way less uh, resource efficient than the Windows version. Oh. And so we happened to have one PC in the office, which was the PC that we used to run our VR. We have like a little VR setup for fun. So we fired up the VR that nobody had used in a couple of months and put Excel on it. And we had our a green lit our uh, capital formations team to use that use the gaming rig for this Excel model for a few weeks. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's really interesting to see how you guys are using the data and the technology to augment the people. And, you know, it kind of taking a little bit of a step out of that. So you've got this system up and running. You said you've done, you know, several hundred deals now. So you've got a few under your belt. Are you seeing any interesting patterns like because you know when when you and i first connected i like probably like most people i'm like oh you finance you know people's uh you know solar on top of people's houses because that's what people think it's either that or like solar panels out in the desert but now that you even now as you describe you know different size businesses i mean is, is there different businesses you know types of businesses that you found that are just more conducive to this like you know remote data centers or warehouses or you know what what are you what are you guys learning about the you know kind of industry is there anything you could share yeah i mean i think there are a number of really interesting trends happening within the in particular within the commercial solar market so we're seeing some really exciting stuff in in community solar We've done a lot of community solar deals. So community solar is, some people might know about this, but this is kind of this regime where you'll build a relatively good size system. This is happening a lot in New York. There's a little bit of this, well, more than a little bit. This, this is happening in Massachusetts as well. There's a number of markets where this happens. Minnesota, interestingly, has a pretty strong community solar market and a very strong program. But in any event, you'll build a relatively decent size array 
and then be able to sell sort of pieces of that power that that array generates to consumers. So that's a pretty cool model. It's kind of this hybrid where it exists some, like you have basically a consumer off taker, somebody who's, you know, typically a homeowner of some form, although it could be a renter as well, who is ultimately purchasing the power from an array that is more of like a commercial scale. Maybe, you know, an array that costs, going back to my, my lingo clarification, an array is what we call a solar array. So that would be, you know, installation of panels out in a field somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, we've done uh, a pretty big volume of, of commercial solar transactions over the last year in particular. That's seen a big uptick for us. We see an interesting kind of cohort in sort of higher ener- like highly energy intense sort of warehouse style applications like cold storage. We've done fewer data centers than I would have expected. I think part of the challenge with data centers is that they need super robust backup power and solar you know, is only producing during the day. So I think when they're investing in energy infrastructure, generally speaking, it's biased towards infrastructure that backs up the grid. But I do think that there is a significant opportunity there. You know, the, the broad thing that we're really, really excited about within the solar industry is a model that works in a deeply scalable way. So we're looking for you know, ways to crack into the very, very generic flat commercial roofs that you see, you know, for example, outside of San Francisco or outside of Los Angeles or, you know, outside of the New York metro area. There are really a lot of unaddressed commercial rooftops in those jurisdictions. And there are a couple of reasons why solar developers are not aggressively targeting those opportunities. One of which is that conducting those sales is, is non-trivial. It's, it's a pretty difficult sale to conduct. And so when we think about what Wonder is really at its core, we are a technology company that mobilizes software for the purposes of decision support and automation to reduce transaction costs associated with building these solar arrays. And so right now, most of the ways in which those capabilities are deployed is against the financing side you know, of, of that equation, although we also do our own asset management. So we've done a lot to reduce and automate and you know, reduce the cost and automate the way in which we conduct asset management. But, you know, we're increasingly interested in looking at deploying our capabilities downstream of the financing, perhaps closer to the customer. Basically, we're looking for ways to deliver additional value to our solar partners by giving them access to economies of scale that they might not otherwise have the capabilities to access or have the scale to access. That is super cool. Yeah, I mean, you kind of answered what my next question is going to be is what you guys are looking at next. So I guess it's to find some of these unexploited opportunities like that. I mean, that's super, super interesting. You know, we've covered a lot of ground here. I think you guys are, I, I really like the way you, you started out with this is that you were looking to do something that made a difference going into energy sector. Most people, when they hear that, they would immediately think, oh, you know, there's household energy or it's big solar rays at Facebook or something like that. I mean, what you guys are doing, I think is really interesting, kind of addressing, you know, the businesses that are all around us, like we're surrounded by them and, you know, helping those businesses, you know, take advantage of the solar revolution. So I think that's super cool what you guys are doing. And I'm really interested in following you see where you go from here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, if, if other people are interested as well, we are hiring. So check us out. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, go check them I gotta out. Give, I gotta give my shameless plug. Oh, not shameless at all. This is uh, absolutely, I think there's a lot of other people that want to get a, 
look at businesses that are, you know, really doing something to, you know, improve the world around them. So I think uh, you guys take a look at these guys. Well, thank Dave for coming on and um, thanks a lot for spending time with us. And we're looking forward to see what, what you guys do in the next few years. It'll be exciting. Excellent. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, find us on iTunes and rate us so that more people can find us. And you can uh, look for the next podcast episode in your feed. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care. Masters of Data is brought to you by Sumo Logic. Sumo Logic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. Sumo Logic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.